All right, do me a favor. Stand with me. I want to do the Shema just to sort of recenter ourselves on where we are and what we're doing here. Um, I prefer like a small gathering, a small room of people. If, if, if I had my way, we'd sit up like in a circle in the middle of the room, just us, lock the doors, nobody else, <laughs> turn off the cameras, and we just talk about the text. But we're in America, and this is American Christianity, and so we got to do the whole thing. But just know that like you don't have to come to this and approach this as if it's a TED Talk or like a, like a show or like you don't have to be like, this is our house. Like it's all of our house. Like we, we bought it, we live here, and we hang out here. So, 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 so be present and see each other. Don't be like all standoffish. Just, you know, it's, it's a party, right? Okay, do me a favor. Do the Shema with me. Nice and loud. Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. You can be seated. Father, be with us. Join us here. Uh, Send your spirit to be present with us. We know that uh, you are already working. You are already doing something with each individual life in this room. You're doing something with us communally. You're doing something with us as a people. You You are working already. And I pray that we would... We would affirm that, that we would take part in that, that we would see it, that we would uh, um, be just be present as your people, as the body of Christ, with your spirit here in this place, in this room. I pray that this would be a fruitful time, um, that we would, in this room this morning, be, be focused on your kingdom and your kingdom alone, not our own, not the ones we're trying to build, not the one that we... Um, sort of politically belong to, which we were born into, but I pray that it would be yours. Yours would be the focus of this entire morning. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. All right. Yeah, we're always light, especially if July 4th lands on a Sunday because we don't do the big flag thing with the, with the B-52 flyover and dropping the American flags for everybody like, we God bless America. No, like, it's cool. Um, we're doing... Um, the kingdom of God here. That's what we're talking about. So uh, that's, that's what our focus is this morning. So this is our passage this morning that we just, that we just showed. It was, let me back it up one and show you this again. Okay, so uh, we've been going through Acts, uh, the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 18, second half. We're finishing up the book of Acts, uh, the chapter of Acts 18 today. Last week we did this char- character study on Priscilla and Aquila, fascinating people. Um, there's a lot of fascinating characters in the book of, in the book of Acts. Luke does a great job of sort of giving them to us in a way that's like interesting. Um, he sort of introduces them as like an event happening, right? Um, this is great. I have all this time. I have all this extra time now because there's no announcements. Just joking. I, I'll, I'll go the regular time. I know you got hot dogs and hamburgers to cook. Um, all right, so uh, the way Luke gives us these characters is always sort of like in a little story. It's wrapped up in a little story. So we have this story here of this guy, this character named Apollos. Um, let me show you here. I'll go forward two slides. Let me show you this verse uh, particularly. Um, it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Uh, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. I'm going to stop there. Um, so Apollos is one of the main pastors in the city of Corinth, ancient Roman city, very wealthy, very influential city, like a mini Rome. Um, and he's one of the main pastors there. And he was incredibly talented as a speaker, as an orator. Uh, these are skills in the early first century that were, that were like, that people desired more than anything was to be a good orator. Um, the, the, the way of, you can make an incredible living if you could tell a story really, really good or tell some poetry or tell some sort of um, 
the, the philosophy of, like, of, of Aristotle or Plato, if you could recite it well and act it out, you were thought of well and high in the community. Apollos apparently was very good at that. Um, and he was incredibly enigmatic and so enigmatic that he ended up having sort of his own little following here. We see some division in the church in Paul's letter to that, that very city of Corinthians. Um, it says this, My brothers and sisters, some, of, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. And so the church is starting to split into factions based upon, likely upon, who is the best orator um, because they want honor and status. Um, oh, there's so many places I want to go from here and I don't have time. Real quick, there's this thing that happens where they, some of them bash Paul for being a bad public speaker, but we know Paul's a good public speaker because we see him several times doing amazing things. And what Paul's actually doing is purposely talking, purposely talking monochromatically and boringly while he does his speech in order to lower his own status in the community and to bring down the, the, the honor and status of the entire church on purpose. He, in his mind, the church was thought of too highly. He was like, now, like, the world likes you too much. They're, they want to give you money. They want to put you in places of honor in their society. And so he came walking back and visiting Corinth and speaking terribly. I, I, I'm the leader of this church. Oh, I'm going to tell you a story about this thing. And like, they're all like, Paul, come on, let him have it. And he's like, uh, relax. And he's purposely talking bad. And they got really, really mad about it because they liked power and they liked status. and They liked to be envied, right? And, and like, this isn't far off from a lot of what we see today. Celebrity, pastoring, and stuff like that. We want it. They wanted it. This is not a new thing. This is an old thing. Um, and so the church was starting to split into these factions based upon who could speak better um, and gather a crowd better. There's, there's Apollonian uh, followers and Pauline followers and, how would you say, Cephasian followers, um, right? Uh, and so the church is starting to split up in factions. So this is something going on. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in a bit. Um, but notice what it says in 1825. Let me put this up here. It says, he has been instructed in the way of the Lord. So, early Christians used to be called followers of the way. It was a description of the way that they lived. Um, they weren't actually called Christians until actually pretty soon after this text, when they go to Antioch. They go to the city of Antioch, and everyone there knows about Jesus uh, as, not as the Savior of the world. They know about Jesus as the Jewish leader of a revolt that uh, failed, and he was arrested and stripped naked, and his beard was ripped out, and he was crucified and died in this terrible, shameful death amongst these other criminals. Okay? That's how they know of Jesus. And so when the Christians enter in and they begin planting a church, um, the other people of the religions of Antioch wanted to make fun of them, and there's no better way to make fun of the Christians in that day than to call them Christians. Because Christ was considered such low status. The way that he died, what happened to him, all his honor, all his status, out the window, and these people were mocked. And so the word Christian is actually a mocking um, of who these people were. They called themselves the followers of the way. And when the, the reason they called themselves followers of the way is because they understood that they were ordering their life around something, around the life of Jesus. This is not for them. This is not some set of beliefs that they believed and moved through the world just believing some things so that they could go to heaven someday when they died. For them, they were followers of the way. There was a way you were supposed to live. It was ordering your entire life around this thing. You have these passages that Paul 
Paul sort of pulls this out. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. This is one of my favorite verses of Paul, my current favorite verses. That kind of moves around and shifts and changes. Right now, this is, for the last couple of years, this has been one of my favorite Pauline verses. Because when he says, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, the Greek word there, perhaps you've heard me talk about this, the Greek word there is the word theatric. It's where we get our word for theater and theatrical performance. And what Paul's saying is, we are a theatrical performance of the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so our lives look as if we were Jesus walking around. Our, our li- we, we, uh, when it comes time to pour ourselves out so others can be filled and find healing and goodness and be made whole again, we do it because we're like Jesus. And so we allow ourselves, allow ourselves to be broken and poured out for those around us. And the way he describes the Christian community, the way that they lived and everything, they were living out the way of Jesus. And I think that language is so important. We call ourselves Christians instead of followers of the way, instead of followers of Jesus, because it's easier to call yourself a Christian because it's just like sort of this nebulous thing. It's this individual thing that people walk around and say like, oh, I'm a Christian. Um, And it's a personal belief system. Um, But it was never that for these early Christians. It was a way of being, a way of living, a way of existing, a way of, of acting and responding to everything that was happening around them. Um, and so for those steeped in Roman culture, um, to see people living like Christ was, was this fascinating thing. And they couldn't help but make fun of them because they didn't have any of the things that give you high status um, like the Romans in the ancient world. And when they bore this shame and this dishonor and this humiliation in public, they considered it a privilege. They, as Paul said, they considered themselves to be sharing in the sufferings of Christ. This is exactly what Christ experienced. And so when I experience this, I'm suffering in the same way Christ did. I'm just, I'm being like Christ. I think this is not a bad way to, to think about your suffering, about the difficulties of life. This is not a bad way to think about what we've had to go through for the last year with COVID. This is not like allowing yourselves, like giving up your rights and your privileges so that others may live and flourish is one of the most Christ-like things that Christians saw, that Christians could possibly do. And they always have done this. Um, And so when you are in a difficult time, when you are suffering for something, it's not a bad way to understand your suffering, to understand it like Paul and the early Christians did, to say, oh, this is just me sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Christ went through this as well. And so I can respond in a Christ-like way as he did. Um, and so I think if we were to ponder ourselves and think of ourselves as followers of the way, I think that actually might make a bit of a difference, uh, in how we live our lives. Maybe if we, if we emphasize that we're not, we're not, we're not just Christians, we're not just this American religion thing. We are followers of the way of Jesus and we are here to be the presence of Jesus in your midst. So, uh, what we see here when we, when we read about the introduction of Apollos and who this man is. What we see is it starts off, his life sort of, his story here in the text, it seeped in a bit of a conflict right away. Um, You see Paul teaching and proclaiming the things of Jesus, and he's very good at it, but then something happens. So this guy is a a Jewish Christian from Alexandria. Um, Oh, a fun fact that I read this week uh, from uh, uh, an ancient uh, historian, a uh, a a fourth century historian named, his name is Jerome, and he writes about Apollos. Uh, from sort of other, other people talking about like sort of traditions that are passed down from these ancient people. They weren't all written down, but they were passed down orally because not everybody could write. And so this guy named Jerome hears some things about Apollos and he writes them down. And one of the things that he writes is that, um, is that, uh, 
the infighting and the division between the Jews and the Gentiles in the city of Corinth was so bad and got so bitter um, that he eventually left the city, Apollos did. He left the city of Corinth. He went to Crete and he retired there. And eventually after Paul writes his letters and goes and visits and is able to calm things down, um, he kind of returns. It's almost like he has a bit of this nervous breakdown. He has this sort of like, I can no longer take the tension and the fighting. And he had to leave. And so we know from church history, like this church was a mess. This church that Apollos was, was working in, the one of the main pastors of, the ones that Paul here is, is, is visiting and working with, they're a complete mess. You hear sometimes people talk about how, well, we want to be like a first century church. And you kind of want to ask, like, which one? Corinth? The ones that all hated each other and fought like crazy? Maybe Ephesus? Where they're, they're sort of steeped in like this pagan worship of Artemis, and, and the women can't even lead in the church there because they're so steeped in the, in the matriarchal traditions of Artemis that, like, it screws up the whole order of the church service. Which, which church do you want to be like? It's not hard to look at all of them and say, like, I think we're more like this one. And, and believe me, we have as many problems uh, as every one of the churches in the ancient world. They weren't these perfect groups. We can't look at them and say, well, they had it figured out. They really didn't. They were closer, I would say, than we are because they had these understandings about their context in which they lived and how they were to be God's people in the world. But I think they struggled with all the same things that we did. In fact, when you read the letter to, especially the first letter to the city of Corinth, the church there, um, we tend to read it with rose-colored glasses. We read Paul, and we read like Romans, thir- like 1 Corinthians 13, right? We read this at, and you've heard me talk about this before probably, we read this at weddings. Um, we, we put it in like love letters to each other. We want everyone to know what love is. It's, it's the famous passage in the Bible where Paul describes what love is. He says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy. It doesn't boast, it's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And the reason that Paul writes this is because this church was really, really bad at loving. And what he's doing is he's describing all of the things that they are doing. And he's saying, and that's not love. And so what... This letter was intended to confront them and bring them to repentance. It was meant to be, we're going to gather the whole church, and someone's going to read this letter out loud, and they're going to yell at us, as Paul wants to. And, and sort of like those Harry Potter letters, you know, opens up and screams at you with a howler, right? Like, this is what this is. And as they hear this, the speaker will be pointing at them and yelling these things, love is patient, love is kind, Right? So what we know about them is we know that they were unkind, impatient, envious, boastful, prideful, dishonoring, self-seeking, easily angered, keeping records of everything everyone did wrong. Um, They were delighting in evil. They were not protecting each other. They were not hoping for each other. Their relationships were not the kind that persevered in difficult moments in life. And so Paul writes to them and he says, hey, all of these things, these are not love. This church has a problem. They fight like crazy. And so Paul's letter to them was not meant to teach them theology. It was meant to hit them over the head and wake them up and say, you are not Christ-like in any way. And you need to learn to be because you're losing it and you're missing it. There's one opportunity that you have. Um, And so apparently these things, these divisions were really hard on Apollos. Uh, You know, some people thrive in conflict. Not Apollos, not me. Um, a lot of us have a very hard time with conflict, and we'd much rather run away. But we know 
we know that things can and must be repaired and made whole and made right. Um, and so that's what I want to talk about, this confrontation that they had with Apollos. There's this, there's this part in Acts 18.26 where it talks about Apollos, and it says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Okay, so he was like passionate, but like passionately wrong about something, right? Like, man, that guy can speak, but can you fact check everything that he just said? And apparently, some things are wrong with what he said. Um, And Luke, this is fascinating to me, that Luke doesn't even tell us. You know why Luke doesn't tell us? I think two reasons. I think, first off, I don't think Luke Luke knew. Uh, I think Priscilla and Aquila are not gossips. I think they are godly, Christ-like people. And I think whatever they saw in this young man who was preaching, uh, whatever they saw that was in error, they kept it to themselves. They didn't go around and gather up a little group and be like, did you hear? Did you hear? Here, I think we should oust him kind of thing. Like, they didn't do any of that. They literally, like, invited him to their house to sit down and share a meal. Another reason I think we're told, we're not told what, what was wrong, like what they disagreed with, was because then suddenly this passage would become about that. It would become a teaching that was centered on this is what Apollo said, but he was wrong, and it's actually this, and so let's go into this topic. And I, I, think, I think what we're supposed to focus on is the ability of the early church to reconcile as a sort of like in contrast to everyone else in the world who was exercising power over each other. Somehow the church, because of the presence of the Spirit, because of their understanding of who Jesus was, was able to gather in a room with people that they disagreed with wildly and talk it out and patch it up and reconcile and come to common ground. They were able to do this in the Roman Empire, one of the most terrifying, dominating, divisive places in the ancient world. And they were able to do this. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about how. Like, what did they do? What are the key elements that are there? And how can we practice this? So we're talking about confrontation today. Um, There's really three ingredients to a successful confrontation. Um, And I'll lay them out now, and then we'll we'll open them up and talk about them. First off, you need a table. Um, And the second, you need need physical presence. You have to be in the room with somebody. And the last thing you need is mutual submission. So we're going to talk about all three of these things this morning. So first off, Priscilla and Aquila start by inviting him over to, to, to their house, to, to the dinner table. In the ancient world, the dinner table was the central recurring sort of symbol of who you were in the ancient world. It showed the world who you fellowshiped with. And so you would sit at the table with people who were like you or above you, but never below you if you could help it. But in the church, the table was different. They took this societal thing known as the table the, uh, and, and they took it and they subversively used it to tell a different story about who God is and who we are, as human beings are called to be in God's image. What the Christians did is they set the table and they gathered and shared the meal with those of various statuses as equals. In a world where you only shared the table with those of equal or higher status, the table in the church was seen as the place where Christ is present, where the Spirit does its work through building transformative relationships, where the two people come together as equals and they see each other and, and, they, and they eat. And when they eat, when we are fed, we are taking part somehow in this mystical thing of like something is giving its life for us, whether it's a, a cow or a plant. Like something is giving its life for us. We take it into ourselves and so that we may live in the ancient minds of the ancient people. This is a sacred thing. And so when you do it with other people, you are taking part in a gift of the gods and you share it 
with honorable people. And the early church understood that this is something we're going to do, and we're going to gather people from all walks of society, and we're going to do this public. We're going to open up all the doors, and people walking by are going to look in, and they're going to see us, and they are not going to understand what is happening in that room. Slave and free and Jew and Gentile, men and women, people from all over the world in every status, even children, sitting at the table. How is this possible, that they're at the same table together? So the table is the closest thing we have in the ancient world to, like, the picture of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And so when they gather at the table, they're painting a picture for the world of like, this is what God is actually doing. You're all doing this opposite thing. You're separating each other through labels and statuses and names and and countries and nations and borders and, and memorial weekends, right? Like you're separating yourselves from each other in all these ways, but here's what God is doing. And they gather everyone together at one table. That is what the Christians argue God is doing through Christ in the world. So, What do we have like this today? We really don't have many practices like this. We live in a very divided sort of society, in a very divided country today. The closest thing I would argue that we have to the table fellowship is sort of the Sunday morning gathering. Um, It was never, by the way, supposed to become this, a bunch of people sitting in a room facing one direction while a guy talks to them. It was never, this is very Constantinian. This is given to us by the Catholic Church starting in the year like 325. This is all sort of, This is a cultural construct, what we're doing here. But it's a part of our culture, and so we should embrace it and use it to the glory of God. But in the ancient world, they gathered around a table, and they ate a meal. That was their gathering. And they taught, and they took communion. But the closest thing we have to that is the Sunday morning gathering. It's one of those, I mean, okay, let me put it like this. Uh, About once or twice a month, I get emails from people who have moved away, who attended our church for a while and moved away, and they're looking for a church like our church. And they're like, Tommy, I moved to podunk nowheresville and i'm looking for a church like watermark and i'm like sorry no uh, i'm like you know i i, I you know i sort of asked him to describe like what, what exactly are you looking for and this and that and but really ultimately I, I i sort of like to poke and prod and say until you really find your thing like church church hunting really sucks like it, it's not a good thing i haven't done it for 20 years because i've been a pastor here but I hear about it all the time, and I hear it's a miserable thing to do. I'm really sorry you have to go through that. Just don't. Just stay. Um, but, like, what we like to do is, is, you know, we go somewhere, and we're very sort of American consumeristic. We, we go looking for a, a church that makes all of our wildest dreams come true. We're, we want a building full of people that see things exactly the way that we do, first off. That's a must. I can only associate with people just like me. So they have to think like I do, be in the same circles, follow the same people on social media, like all that stuff, have the same quotes in their heads and share the same memes. Um, And they have to have the same morals, the same cultural standards, the same interpretation of the text, the same hermeneutic, and and they will fully agree with everything that I already believe, including all of the ways that I've already been formed by culture. And that's what I'm looking for. A room full of Tommies. Can I get a room full? Show me a room full of Tommies. That's what I need. Um... And all of this, really, though, I, I understand why we want that, because there's this sort of comfort level thing where, like, we want a safe place where we can gather with people and, like, say the things that we think without getting pushback. And I get that. A lot of people are heavily abused by churches, by churches that don't create a place for you to ask any question you want and just literally just talk honestly and openly about any subject. Um, and so all of this idea is wrapped up in the modern ideas that we can somehow create a sort of community that is homogenous in some way, that we can somehow create, I mean, isn't that what America was always trying to do? Like, 
We say, we say we want a diverse thing, but like really society doesn't. That's why there's so much fighting. We want everyone to be like us. And so we, we sort of, we have these modern ideas that we can create a space somehow that is homogenous, that everyone thinks the same way. But actually, that's a modern idea. That's, it's impossible. Uh, the only way that modern societies can actually achieve a community like that, where everyone is, is the same, is through coercion. Through arming people and kicking out those who don't belong and by guarding the doors, however that looks in your community, your state, your country. The only way you can sort of create that is through coercion, and God doesn't actually work through coercion. That's what Jesus revealed to us. And so oftentimes, I mean, I mean churches do this too. Churches are very coercive, and they, churches do their best to try to create a, a hegemony uh, through things like codes of conduct, doctrinal statements, things, statements of belief that go beyond the historic Nicene Creed. We go beyond the historic Christian creeds because somehow we want to do better than the early church. We want to, no, 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 we can do better than them if we control the doors and, and keep out whoever wants to come in that we don't like and who we're not like. And, and we don't want to do this by asking everybody, so we, we write statements and we put them up. And we say, if you're this, you're with us. If you're not, sorry. Keep on walking. Um... That is coercive. That's what that is. The early church gathered under the banner of the creeds that told us about the things that Jesus revealed to us about God. Here's what God revealed to us about the Father. And we believe those things. Um, and so sometimes when people ask me, I'm looking for a church and this and that, here's what I tell them. I, I tell them oftentimes, like, until you find the community that God has for you, I want you to just go to the nearest church. I want you to just go gather with them until you find really what you're looking for. If you don't have any other ideas, if there's nothing there, go to the church closest to you, and I want you to walk in there as a spiritual exercise, as a discipline. I want you to walk in there, and I want you to meet some people, and I want you to worship shoulder to shoulder with them. You don't have to agree. In fact, the fact that you would rather that you will gather with people who are unlike you and take communion and worship Jesus shoulder to shoulder with them is exactly the picture of the early church that the world needs to see. This is what it was always supposed to be. But we look at it, we say, I can never, I can't, I can't go in there with them. I disagree with them. I understand. Picture the table of the first century. Picture what was happening there. Picture the statuses that were gathered there in that place and the reconciliation that was happening that was impossible unless they gathered in that way. The practice of the church, this gathering, is meant to be a gathering of people that would never come together in any other situation or circumstances. Old, young, men, women, black, white, brown, like just people from all walks of society, rich, poor, all of us gathering together, and there is nowhere else that we would all be found in the same room. Nowhere. Even if some amazing popular store is having some 99% off store, there's probably a few people who would be like, I'm not into that. Like, we're different people. We would never come together anywhere, but here we are. Why? Because this is what the church is supposed to be. It's a picture of what God is doing. It's a picture of God bringing people together for his kingdom and what the future world will look like. And so the table is necessary. And so if there is a problem with Apollos and the things that he's saying, Priscilla and Aquila, see it, and they invite him to the table as equals so that they can share the rope uh, the, the, they can share sort of the, the meal together. So that's the first thing you need is a table. Uh, the second thing you need is physical presence. Confrontation is not something that can happen digitally. 
Confrontation is not necessarily something that can happen through a letter. Although each one of these things gets a little closer to what we're after. Um, sort of a phone call is better than a letter. It's better than an email. It's better than a text. Physical presence is the best possible scenario. Physical presence around a meal, around the table is even better. All of these things create space for the Spirit of God to be present and walk you through what you need to, to walk through together. If we look at this passage, we notice what was absent. Um, they didn't... They, they heard him teach, and they disagreed, but they didn't stand up and blast him publicly. They didn't write an open letter to Apollos and post it anywhere. They didn't call him any names. They didn't use any adjectives to describe him in any way. They apparently didn't gossip about him because even Luke doesn't even know what the problem was. Um, this is such a departure from what we see in churches today. Gossip, slander, destroying other people's reputations, trying to erode their credibility, but rarely, if ever, an invitation to the table, to sit at the table, to share a meal, and to look at each other and see each other as, as equals, to be filled and to listen. Um, instead, we cut off communications. We cut off, uh, we, we communicate through disembodied text messages or emails so that we don't have to gaze upon the human face whose reputation we have been out there slandering and, and gossiping about. And once we've done that, the last thing we want is to be in a room with them. But the first thing the early Christians did was to get together. Go with them. Jesus even says, Matthew 18, like, if your brother sins against you, go to him. He doesn't say go the opposite direction and never see him. Go to them. If that doesn't work, take somebody with you. Keep taking more and more people. You're a community. You're a society. Um, and so we try to, to gather up others that dis- to, to oftentimes that, that, that agree with us against these other people, and we go against them. And all of this, what we're trying to do is we're trying to win. This is very Roman, and this is very American. America is very much like the Roman Empire was right now in our history. Um, one of the ways that the Romans believed that they could create unity and peace in the world was through power and coercion, through conquering their enemies, through defeating them and making them, forcing them to submit to their ways and become more Roman. And oftentimes we do that as well. We go to the people we disagree with and we force them to become more like us so that we can have unity and peace. But what we find in the scriptures through Jesus and through the work of the Spirit in the early church is people coming together and finding unity through grace, not coercion. Through offering themselves, giving and inviting the other person into a relationship with them. It's this totally different way. It's not, it's not peace through Pax Romana. It's, it's peace through the cross through pouring yourself out. This is what Jesus has offered us so that we make, can, can understand that we have peace with God, with the Father. Pours himself out. He doesn't make us align as he did. He doesn't make us jump through all the hoops and be perfect and live these perfect lives. Instead, he creates a way for us and he pours himself out for us. This is how reconciliation happens on God's own side. And so this is how it should happen on ours. You guys, the isolation of COVID, have you seen what it has done? To society. Um, it has revealed such incredible brokenness in, in human relationships. COVID has both made visible what has been invisible for so long, these under sort of underlying sort of like rumblings underneath the things that we want to say, but we're never brave enough and, and powerful enough to say it, right? Um, and it has caused cracks and sort of breaks in our relationship. I heard a theologian this week on, I think it was the Theology on Mission podcast, uh, I like to source things. Um, and what, what he, sort of, he sort of described what we see during COVID as sort of an, an earthquake. An earthquake is the revelation of like what's all been going, the pressure that's been building up underneath of the surface. And suddenly it all sh- shifts and moves and just destruction everywhere. Everything is shaken up. Um, 
And there has been this sort of this awakening, awakening to all that has been underneath all of it. Sexual abuse, racism, misogyny, abuses of power. And people have, people have nowhere to go. They feel like they have nowhere to go to process their anger and their rage, to lament and to be heard, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to share his table, and to ask God for the spirit, God's spirit, which is rich in wisdom, to sort of wash over them and, and, and give them what they need to understand how they are to be faithful in times like this. Instead, what happens is, we're alone, we're sitting in our cars, we're sitting on our beds on the internet, and we're, and we're sending these angry distress signals out into the internet, out into the cosmos, and we're pleading for people to come and see us and hear us and receive my message. Please, I'm in pain. Hear me. And we're all calling out together. But what we require is a table to gather around, a space to come and see each other and hear each other to submit to each other and to listen to each other's anger and bitterness. We must gather physically and bodily in order for the reconciliation to take place. I, uh, I believe God is active in our disputes. Any disputes that you are having in your life, um, I know you hate them and you, you want them to just go away without any work. You want to just run away from it all and cut everyone off. But I, I want you to know, I, I think God is active in those disputes. I think God is working in those disputes and through those disputes, and I think God is doing something through them. Um, and I hope you realize that. I, I think these disputes are important. God wants to use them to transform us. I think the only, the only way we can be transformed is through the presence, though, the table fellowship, through prayer and fasting, praying thy kingdom come into our midst as we gather with these people. Not our kingdom, no coercion, no, I'm gonna convert you to my way. I'm not trying to force you into anything. Thy kingdom come. Seek the kingdom of God first. Um, and the third thing that we see, so I want to remind you, there's the table and there's physical presence. And the third thing that was, that was present in their sort of confrontation with Apollos that made it okay, the third thing that, that was present was, was mutual submission. This is something that is rarely talked about that is all through the text. The idea that the Christians were gathering and regularly submitting to each other. We live in sort of a hierarchical world where we expect everyone to submit to the people above them. And actually, increasingly, in a postmodern world, nobody is encouraged to submit to anyone. Like, there's things shift and things change. The collective way we view the world, our collective psyche sort of shifts and changes. And I'm not declaring that this is right and this is wrong, or this is wrong and this is right. I'm not interested in any of that. I want to declare what is and look at how things sort of work in our society. It's possible that your society is hostile to what you are being called to, and we need to see that if that's true. And so mutual submission is an important thing. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then you skip to verse 21. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another, each of you to one another. I think we're all, okay, this will be fun. We're, we're all painfully aware of the, um, of what, I guess, Gen Z apparently uh, affectionately calls the Karen, right? Now, I know a lot of Karens, wonderful people, like, like real women named Karen, that's what I'm saying. Um, there's some in our church. We love all our actual Karens. Now, what they're saying is when they call someone a Karen, in case you're not aware, in case you've been living under a rock in quarantine, intense loneliness for a long time, um, what a Karen is, it's, it's really just referring to a woman who uses coercive means to try and force others to submit to their will. 
They use whatever is available to them. They'll call the police because they have some sway over what goes on with the police. They'll, they'll yell and scream and get their way. They'll use tears and crying and smashing stuff because they know they're less likely in society to get in trouble than other people are. Um, and so they use coercion, typically, to get you to do what they want you to do. Now, the culture in which we live is particularly unfriendly to the idea of submitting to anyone. That's why Karens exist. But I... It's sort of like luck of the draw that your name gets used for something, right? Like I, at any day now, I could be like, what a Tommy. I'm like, ah, here we go. Here we go. So I apologize to the Karens and the Chads and the, all the other names that people take and use. Um, lots of them. It'll keep shifting and maybe we'll get through all of us, okay, eventually. Um, but the culture in which we live is, is not very prone to submitting to anyone, but that is what is required of us in the text regularly. It's exactly what the church is called to do for each other, to take turns speaking and submitting, listening to the other, attempting to see through their eyes to mirror their feelings, to understand that, like, if you were in their position, you would feel the way that they do. I know you don't think so, but you would. Why? Because you would have had their background, you would have had all of the things that contributed to their forming in culture and society, and yes, there are thousands of things that they need to repent of, but here they are right now, and with their experience all wrapped up into this, as you sit across from them and you listen to them, you must understand If they were in your shoes, they would see the world through your eyes because they'd have your experiences. If you were in their shoes, you'd see the world through their eyes. And so what we need is grace for each other and presence and serious words and submission to each other and the desire to repent effectively. To look in our own hearts and actually pay attention to what is going on inside of us. Most of the time, we want to shape the world around us and the people in it, in our own image and comfort. Instead of praying, instead of starting off by praying, God, your kingdom come. No, no, no. Our prayer is usually, God, I need your help as I really lay it out for them so that they will change. I need your help so that they can see things from my side, God, because you know I'm right. God, I need you present to fight this battle with me and conquer the enemy that is obviously within them, possessed by the, the... devil from the pit of hell to live this way. And so God, join me in my quest to bring holiness into their life. And that's what we do because we have a kingdom that we want to come. And so God, please come, bring my kingdom, my kingdom come. But really we should be starting these things off with God, your kingdom come, whatever it is that you're doing, transform me, transform them, make us both like you. And it means praying that as they speak, I would begin to be transformed and equipped to bring healing to them. That I would hear the things that are actually broken instead of the things that they say they're mad about. The actual things that are broken. The feeling that they don't matter to anyone. The feelings that they've been disrespected. The abuse that they've gone through at the hands of their parents or their religion or their politics. Or all of the things that, it, that they have been crushed under the weight of. To look at people as Jesus does with some level of, of sympathy and empathy mirroring their feelings. And saying, I, I didn't know you were carrying all of this. We all are. All of us are. And this doesn't mean that the problem or the disagreement goes away with the meeting. It may not. You may have to do this every week for months, years, decades. But this is the religious practice. This is the discipline. The gathering around the table. Asking God to be present. And having the conversations that need to be have. And staying there and returning to it. God will continue to meet you there. God is already at the table waiting for you to sit down. If you've ever confronted someone and hoping that they would just 
see the error of their ways and turn around, and you were probably very surprised that it, that it didn't exactly go as you, had, as you had planned. It rarely does the first time. But there are, I'm going to close with this, there, there, there are three reasons, I think, why it fails oftentimes. Check. All right. Now I feel like a comedian. Hold on. Let me get rid of this. It's just one of those Sundays, right? You guys all right? <laughs> there's, like this, there's just this kind of awkward vibe in the room. Like, I, I feel great. Like, I could go all day. I really could. And then wait until people start walking out and be like, all right, we'll wrap it up. We'll land the plane. So if you've ever confronted someone and it didn't work out well, I would offer three things to you. First off, I, w- I would argue that you came wielding power. Jesus has shown us that God doesn't work in this way. God doesn't... Religion cannot be coerced. Religion m- must be freely chosen. And so we invite people into it. We invite people to follow Jesus. We invite people to align this part or that part of their life in the path of Jesus. And if they don't, We don't coerce. Instead, we worship God with them and we continue to share the table with them. And we continue to share that space with them. Not poking and prodding all the time. Instead, loving and listening and submitting to them at the table, present there. Um, You didn't think really that that you cared. Like, they didn't. What happens when somebody feels coerced is they don't feel like you care about them, really. They, They feel like you only want to coerce them to change. And oftentimes it can feel like they're taking part in idol worship. You can look at what they're doing. You just want me to be like you. You want everybody to be like you. You want the whole world to be fashioned in your image, but what I want is to be like Christ. And so why don't we together look for that thing? And the second reason I think oftentimes these things don't go well um, is because uh, you came with a lack of, of mutual submission. One of you or both of you weren't really willing to submit to the presence of God in the other person, to sit with them across from the table and say, here's, here's what I see, here's what I think God is doing, and talk about it and, and, and lay it all out and then stop and say, and now I submit to you. What do you see? What do you think God is doing and why? And let them talk, submit to them, receive what they're saying, ponder it as if God is possibly giving something to you. Because he is. He's giving you this conversation to transform you, to begin the process of you becoming a different, whole different person. But if there's no mutual submission, then you are unwilling to do for them what you are demanding for yourself. You want them to listen to you, but you are unwilling to take up that posture on your own. And the third thing uh, is, um, is, that, is that it's likely that God was not invited to be present and to guide that again, you started off your prayer with my kingdom come instead of God's. God was invited to take your side and to fight with you against them. You made some unexamined assumptions about the divine, about God, that God is obviously on your side and you assume that God is, but you likely asked no questions about your own heart. My plea to you in this whole thing, I mean, I I want you to read this story again this week and and see exactly what happened. They confront Apollos, and apparently things went well. 
which is a shocker. Like, you, you never see confrontations going well, but it does. And when they're done, they send Apollos off to the next church, and they send letters to all these churches and saying, hey, this guy's coming, and he's awesome. They don't say, you know, he's getting better. You know, he's no, he's no Priscilla or Aquila. Like, he's no Paul, and he's got some problems. Pay attention. No, they just say, no, receive him as if you're receiving us. And they prepare the way for him. They know that they need him for the mission of God. We rarely see each other in this way. But my plea to you all is that you begin to set your tables to gather people around them. Once a week, once every other week, get some people around the table. Put some topics on the table that you need to talk about. Put some topics on the table that, that you've been, some ideas you've been kicking around in your mind. Ask questions about the Christ-likeness of these things, what it means to follow Jesus faithfully in these things. Do this with others. If you need an elder from the church presence, we will be there. I will join you at your table if I can. I got kids and stuff they got to do, but I'll do my best. I will clear as much as I can of the schedule. I do everything I can to be present with you. And I do this regularly. I gather with, with different house churches when they were, because I think I'm meeting with some of you this week. We're going to drink beer and talk about God. It's going to be fun. Um, this is necessary. Christianity is not a thing you do by yourself. You don't get up and go to church and you're done. This is not, you, you gather with these people. Linger at the table longer than you normally would. Ask the questions that you normally wouldn't. Listen to each other. If there's something you disagree with, lean in, move in closer. Don't pull away. Build that relationship. Be generous with them. Give gifts as an act of inviting them into mutual grace relationships. Do these things that the early church was doing and watch what happens in your midst. Watch the Spirit of God move there. There is a difference. I'm going to end with this. There is a difference. I know I said that already. There is a difference between being right and being Christ-like. A lot of people are very right but are not Christ-like, which makes them wrong. That's what it does. The right thing is the thing that is Christ-like. That's what it is. Um, I believe God is in our conflicts. I believe he is working, and I believe things can be mended if we believe that God can do that and we gather in such a way with everything present that we need, the table, the communion, the person, the prayer, the spirit, all of it. And so that's what I have for you today. That's what I want to encourage you in. Share the table together regularly, meaningfully. Would you stand with me? We're going to end today with the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Uh, <laughs> let's pray. Yeah, let's do this out loud, and then I'm going to pray to close this out. Nice and loud. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, be with us this week. Go before us. Um, guide us. Bring us somehow um, towards your likeness. Let us be a people, Christiform, constantly growing and changing and forming ourselves in the path of Christ. Let us, let us deconstruct our entire lives and build the whole thing up fashioned around you, your life, your teachings. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Love you all. Have an incredible Sunday. Go in peace.